Just before we start, we all know that there's a problem in academia with people not getting paid for the work they're doing, particularly younger scholars. We at the project want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So we need your help to do that. If you can afford to donate £1 a month to support this project and keep it free forever, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash projectrs and sign up there. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can do that too through our PayPal button on the homepage. But together we can help to change the culture of exploitation in academia. That's patreon.com backslash projectrs. Now here's the episode. It's Monday, so welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David McConaughey, and he is... Well, I'm Chris Cotter. It's a pleasure to be back, and it's December, Dave. I can't quite believe it. How did that happen? I have no idea. <laughs> I think it has something to do with sun and rotating and all that kind of stuff. All I know is it... The relentless march of time. Yeah, it is the relentless march. It feels like a very long term for us here as we head into December and uh, the end of the semester. <laughs> so um, um, what do we have today for the listeners, Chris? Um, well, today we have uh, our sterling uh, EASR interviewer, Sidney Castillo. I think this is podcast number five from his uh, EASR extravaganza. Um, and he was speaking to David Herbert and Josh Bullock about their research into unbelief in a sort of comparative European context. So he's gone with the title Unbelief as a Nuanced Phenomenon, the Sociology of Non-Religion Across Europe. So um, I think we'll just hand over to David, Josh and Sydney, and then take it up after, yeah. Well, uh, I am here now with uh, Josh Bullock and David Herbert. We are at the EASR conference 2018 in Tartu, Estonia. And uh, we are happy to be gathered here. And we are talk- going to talk about Understanding and Belief, the project that they are working on is Reaching for a New Sense of Connection, the Sociality of Non-Religion in Europe. Welcome. Uh, I think if you could kindly introduce yourselves, it would be great for our listeners. Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, I am currently doing a postdoctoral uh, research on the Understanding and Belief Project at Kingston University. Uh, my background's in the soci- sociology of religion, but primarily non-religion. So mm-hmm. if it could just be sociology of non-religion, that would be fine with me. Um, and my PhD was on looking at the Sunday Assembly, the secular congregation. Hi, I'm... Um... David Herbert. I'm Professor of Sociology at Kingston University, London, and I work on religion and now non-religion, also on migration and integration issues across Europe. Perfect. Thank you and welcome again to the list. That's great. So let's just dive right in into the, the questions. And since you're working on the Understanding and Belief Project, I would like to ask, firstly, what makes unbelief an analytical distinct category from others such as non-religion, horizontal transcendence, secular worldviews, and so on? Yeah, so the way 
the whole Understanding Unbelief project was set up. They gave us a lot of scope to define our own terms. So the term that we've used is non-religion because that's kind of easy to define in terms of people who say they have no religion when you ask them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we found interesting looking at the survey data was that people who say they have no religion, when you ask what most closely fits with your point of view and you give them a choice of a personal God, life force or spirits, then many of them say actually life force or spirit rather than uh, there is definitely no God. So there's a kind of an area of non-religious which is um, includes yeah both people who believe in supernatural type stuff and kind of what we call like harder atheists, so sort of like a softer agnosticism uh, and a kind of harder atheism. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think I summed it up perfectly for why we're using non-religion rather than unbelief. And also when we were um, trying to find participants for the study, I, I think non-religion is more of a category that people will are likely to relate to at least saying that they have no religion rather than defining themselves as being an unbeliever or having unbelief. So it was more of a relational category which people could yeah we also found when we looked at our data that clearly many of the people we interviewed who very definitely said they had no religion also had a number of beliefs mm-hmm. yeah so they believed in you know fate luck um some of them even used horoscopes, even if in a kind of half-ironic way. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of belief going on. So again, we thought kind of non-religion's better because they're not identifying with religion, whatever they mean by that, mm-hmm. um, but they do have some beliefs. Uh, so it's in that sense, it's more nuanced than yeah. Yeah. unbelief. Sure. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And uh, the next question, uh, yeah, I think you make a good emphasis on a particular age group. Mm-hmm. And uh, why is the project focused on Generation Y or Millennials? How this group differentiates from one other age groups? Yeah, um, so we know that uh, Generation Y, so those born between uh, around 1980s to late 90s, so they, they were around 19 to 37, uh, or participants were, when we interviewed them. Um, and we know based on... ESS and EVS uh, data that they're going to be much uh, less religious than their parents' generation, and even so, even more so than their grandparents' generation. Um, so, and this is in the case for pretty much all of the countries apart from Slovenia across the European Social Studies um, data set. Yeah, I think across 26 countries, there's like one where there are fewer non-religious in that age group than in older age groups but everywhere else it's a growing phenomenon mm. so, so that was like a primary reason because we, we thought the pool would be big, bigger and it also gives us some scope then for like maybe like longitudinal studies we can follow this generation as their beliefs and values change over time mm-hmm. um, and then also part of our project was looking at the kind of sense of connection they take um, and their sociality so we were interested in the kind of social media side of it and how they connect with others, whether it be on forums or, uh, yeah, social media, Twitter, Facebook. and Yeah, we thought as the most intensive social media users that they would be a really good sample for getting a sense of what's happening at the sort of cutting edge of... Um, because uh, with non-religion, there are some kind of older institutions like humanist society and so on, but not so much. 
And so we thought, okay, so are people, do people feel a need to sort of get together in being non-religious in whatever way? And we thought, okay, social media is a good way in. These are high users. We should find something. Yeah. Uh, so even though they don't relate to religion in, in this way, they still want to gather, get together, find like-minded people. Well, that, that was the kind of question we set out with at yeah. the beginning of the project, because it was off the back of um, my research on the Sunday Assembly, which is where non-religious people are gathering to try to find community and belonging in the UK, Netherlands and US. So we were wondering if other kind of institutions or organisations were happening elsewhere in Europe and in kind of what context and, and what did they look like? Because, um, you know, we didn't expect to find the Sunday Assembly in places like Poland and Romania, but we were interested in what kind of other groups might exist yeah and particularly in the question of uh, where religion is playing a more active maybe intrusive role in mm. public life mm -hmm. if that produces a kind of counter reaction mm. and a kind of organization against the encroachment of religion of course, you know, by kind of secular societies but maybe by people organizing in new ways yeah so like a resistance identity over just uh, a need for congregational belonging mm. yeah excellent yeah yeah because they intuitively I can see that because it can be a contrast between these countries where they have more prominent religious life like Poland Romania which mm -hmm. is like highly Catholic and they have also different other religious denominations mm -hmm. and that's actually where the next question is headed in contextualizing unbelief you focus on countries with post-Soviet populations such as Poland Romania and regions of former East Germany mm -hmm. How perceptions of religion and unbelief are shaped by these experiences compared to experiences of Northern Europe? Yeah, so we we had a 50-50 sample, so sort of 50 Western European and 50 Eastern European and, and uh, half each, three in each. And, and we wanted to, yeah, we wanted to see what the differences were. Mm -hmm. um, and also, uh, there were big differences between those countries in terms of the number of non-religious so in Romania, very low, maybe around the kind of 5% mark, maybe a little bit more in Poland. Yeah, about 6 or 7% in Poland. So, But a larger, much larger number in East Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, so what difference does being in a minority make uh, to whether people feel the need to get together? And also, yeah, how politicized religion is. What difference does that make? Uh, when it comes to the, the post-communist situation... Of course, religion was um, treated in somewhat different ways in communist countries. There were always political restrictions on it as a kind of alternative source of loyalty to the communist state. And so we expected that uh, there may be effects in terms of, of the legacy on that, whether it's in terms of, say, um, in Poland, where the church was very strong, resisted communism, strongly attached to national identity, um, but playing a different role maybe in Eastern Germany, where it was you know, much less uh, a kind of force for, for, for national unity. So if religion is uh, been a source of national identity, as it was in, in Poland for resistance to communism, then uh, Maybe that people who are not religious, and particularly if the communist regime, Soviet communist regime, was associated with atheism, mm -hmm. then there's likely to be more negative views to being non-religious and especially atheist. Um, so 
if that affected how people then felt similarly in Romania, mm-hmm. um, but we expected less of that in the in the German context because religion was was less politicized. So yeah, and we saw some kind of legacies of that in terms of how people relate now. There was much more, for example, political organization of non-religion in Poland than we found in in the other contexts. And even though they also have the both of, of these countries have shared this Soviet background, mm. there's all major differences between each of one of them. Hugely so, yeah. Yeah, they have they have very different histories, and also histories taken different turn. Mm-hmm. So in Poland, for example, where religions become uh, kind of force for populism and used by various groups in society and the law and justice government to support various kinds of controversial policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, We found non-religious very active in terms of organizing, example, for women's right to choose. Mm -hmm. Uh, Supporting LGBTQ rights as well and also other kind of causes for equality. Yeah. Yeah. Poland, at least. Yeah, so a strong voice for uh, a kind of resisting um, religion coming into public space uh, and strong voice for uh, kind of pro-choice options, I guess, on on a range of levels. Right. Right. And how can you relate this, uh, I mean, this national context as well as the age group, but the intersectionality, so like race, gender, class, is there also any kind of correspondence in between for the, the same age group, like differences, shared differences in some way? Yeah. We, we had some uh, racial and religious background diversity in our sample. And actually one of the areas where that aspect of diversity came out was we found that amongst uh, people from Hindu and Muslim backgrounds in Western European context, that they were more inclined to express uh, beliefs in in the supernatural and have less reservations about doing so. So we'll talk about, for example, karma mm-hmm. um, and meaningful coincidences um, in a way that was quite common in Eastern Europe, but much less so in Western Europe. So... See, that was perhaps one source of diversity. Yeah, no, just following on from that. So we, we found these beliefs in about 34% of our participants, so just over a third. Um, so I think it was 23 of them in total. And nine came out of um, Poland, eight came out of Romania. The other six were from Western uh, or Northern Europe, but their backgrounds were from Eastern Europe or Northern Africa. So really, this was kind of like a an Eastern Europe phenomenon, having these karmic or cosmic uh, beliefs in... Belief in, yeah, a range of kind of meaningful connections and a sense that as human beings, we're somehow uh, connected to the broader universe. That kind of um, spiritual belief, I guess you could call it, I think many of them would own that term. Uh, they saw that as being compatible with being non-religious. It was something different from religion, uh, but it was yeah much more common in uh, 
Eastern European and people of Eastern European heritage as well as um, the North African heritage in one oh. case. And but yeah, and also you're using this uh, concept of yours of uh, politicization of religion. So how is this concept articulating all the data they have gathered so far? Yeah, so we were interested in investigating how the, the public role of religion uh, makes a difference to how the non-religious uh, react. And religion is publicly prominent for different reasons in the different countries. So uh, because of its politicization uh, in Poland and in support of um, a kind of folk nationalism uh, and in relation Uh, to immigration issues, especially Muslim immigration in Western Europe. So it's a more controversial, you know, it's, it's controversial for different reasons. Right. And so, yeah, we wanted to, to look at the effects of that. And also, I, I was wondering, I think you gave a very, like, so very good giving a macro overview, because you divide your study also in three levels, mm -hmm. macro, meso, and micro. How can you, how have you identified these levels as also the, and the meso level and the micro level? Yeah, so on the micro level, I think one of our biggest findings is coming back to the diversity of the beliefs the non-religious hold. So this was coming back to these paranormal, supernatural, supernatural magical, superstitious beliefs. Um, and despite them saying that they are non-religious, in the sense that they don't identify with um, an institutional religion, they still share a wide range of yeah, diverse beliefs and often these paranormal, supernatural, supernatural mm. magical beliefs. So that was kind of on the micro level. Yes, and, and those supernatural beliefs often seem to serve to connect people to other people, whether it's um, friends and family that they're close to, or to give some sense of moral orientation in the universe. So mm -hmm. quite a few of the stories, uh, the, the meaningful coincidences, were about being rewarded for some kind of good behavior. Right. So you do someone a good turn and then something good happens. Mm -hmm. So that kind of, um, yeah, almost sort of golden rule. Right, right. Projected onto the cosmos, mm -hmm. the kind of sense that there's some kind of moral order. That was that was quite a strong theme that came through, as well as a yeah, a connection to other people. A kind of sense that you know there's there's human significance. Right, right. Uh, yeah, but but often these beliefs were a kind of source of tension in in the in during the interviews, or at least when we were reading back over them. Um, so they would try to kind of explain what happened, these kind of meaningful coincidences in a scientific way, even though there was kind of no, at least to them, logical explanation for what had happened. So things like uh, we, had a couple, we had an example from a young Romanian woman who was living in London who uh, had lived within 200 meters of the same person all her life um, and ended up being best friends with this person, but had moved six times across different countries and still lived within 200 meters of this person. They just kind of followed the same route. Um, so for her, she, this was, you know, this was more than just a coincidence. And she, quote, used the term, you know, it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's also there's, there's kind of this uh, sense that there's an order of things. Um, 
But for others, trying to explain these uh, these events which seemingly are irrational, like books flying off shelves or infinities with numbers or knowing or having a strange feeling when a family member is about to die. Right. So trying to explain these rationally um, was often like a source of discomfort or, or tension. Maybe that was kind of like... A, an artifact of because we, we were creating this tension by asking them to yes. to explain uh, how how this comes or how they understand the event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it came out quite strongly that sense of tension when people were referring to superstitious beliefs that yeah. still affected them, but which at a rational level they challenged. So, for example, one guy talked about black cats and how he would avoid black cats, mm-hmm. and he had a sense that it would give him bad luck, even though he didn't believe rationally that there was any kind of causal process involved. And he actually said he found it really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> found it really, he said he found it really stressful as well. Really annoying, really stressful. Because uh-huh. he didn't believe it, but he would still actively avoid them. Right, right, right. Yeah. I think, I think his starting sentence was... I'm not superstitious, but I don't like black cats. So there's often like contradictory statements, uh, which which are, you know can coexist, I, I guess, between like the analytic and the intuitive, right? Yeah. So we theorise that in terms of a distinction that's made in the developmental psychology literature between uh, analytical modes of thinking, which develop from age kind of or up to, well, keeps going through our lives, I guess, where earlier intuitive beliefs uh, where agency, so the ability to move and change things and to want things, is attributed to inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and gradually that kind of moves out of daily use. But the theory is that we can code switch between those two things so that actually the intuitive stays alongside the analytic and that maybe at moments of stress or it's something we don't know how to deal with. It's like regaining control over the situation, isn't it? It comes out to reinforce, yeah, like a sense of control. So that's what we what we think may have been going on and why people, maybe most of people who reported the experiences didn't feel attention about it all the time. They just kind of did it. But then when we asked them to reflect on it, then they felt attention. And some of them felt it in their daily life as well. Interesting. And I wanted to ask about this specifically, I mean, you mentioned that you have been studying self-reported individuals that like they they say that they are Mm non-believers. But in which way, when you did the interview, carry out the interviews, I, I wonder if some of them were the first time that were actually posing this, all of this like in a more rational state. So build a coherent narrative about their own non-belief. So you had those cases that, oh, if you didn't ask me, I would wonder about that. Yeah, I mean, for lots of cases, this was probably the first time they'd had to articulate their beliefs or put them onto paper, I guess. Some of them were part of discussions on social media and had relationship to like rationalist society. So they may have been used to thinking about those kind of things, but many of them not. So I think we had, we had a kind of mixture in terms of how reflective, um, but because it was quite a wide ranging interview, probably, well, hopefully there was something that was new for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Um, any concluding remarks you want to give? 
of your projects and your results? Um, I mean, just returning back to the micro, meso, macro. Uh, so if we turn, if we go back to the kind of like medium level stuff, there, there is some examples which we found in Europe. Um, for example, in Frankfurt in Germany, they have a meetup group called Drinking and Socializing with Atheists. Um. So you can go for a pint down the pub and talk existential questions and big life uh, politics and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's quite small, so, so there's not, we, we didn't really come across very many meso groups, kind of medium level groups. But in terms of macro, um, there were a few. So the Norwegian humanists play quite a big role in uh, providing ritual and structure for non religious um, yeah, young Norwegians. Yeah, that's an unusual case because it's state funded like the churches, mm-hmm. so it has much more resources to draw on, so there's a kind of national structure with people working full time for them. Whereas in other cases, it's kind of self-startup networks, mostly. Mm. Uh, But we also found, you know, quite a lot of um, innovation in terms of practices. So, for example, the Polish um, Big Atheist of the Year Awards ceremony that that goes with that. So the the KLF, the Kazimierz Lezinski, apologies for the pronunciation. Um, Yeah, every year they hold like an annual march and they... They have atheist picnics throughout the summer, so there's a kind of sense of the community and belonging building there, a bit similar to the Sunday Assembly, but primarily it's more to do with uh, campaigning, as we mentioned earlier, for like equal rights and women's rights. Uh, but there's some innovation there, yeah, in terms of atheist ceremonies to reward the biggest atheist of the year in terms of their contribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess our headline finding is that there is diversity, that the non-religious category doesn't mean that there aren't some kind of supernatural beliefs going on. Those might not be the most important things Mm -hmm. for those people, but they definitely feature at least for a sizable minority. And also, I guess, that there does seem to be a kind of um, an interaction with the broader society in terms of how active people are, so that where people are feeling that their non-religious identity is under threat, then they kind of get together to organise, particularly right. in the in the Polish, in the Polish case. case. Yeah. Uh, whereas, um, yeah, I guess it's it's more a sort of looser network type affiliation, mm-hmm. uh, which you can see from looking at the social media data. Quite a lot of them, because most of our cohort, I guess, were bilingual, which is quite not maybe completely bilingual, but certainly use English as a functional language. Mm-hmm. That's pretty common amongst millennials. Yes. Uh, and that enables them to follow people that they like mm. in the UK um, or in other European countries where, where there's also English as a working language being used. So there's a kind of a non-religious Eurosphere developing, mm-hmm. I guess. That's very interesting. I think we are going to wrap it up now. Uh, thank you again for being in the Size project and we hope to have you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back, listeners. That was really exciting to hear about unbelief in Europe and non-belief work in Europe. Chris, this is really your area, and since I'm in the American context, can you talk a little bit more about this? And I know you've heard David and Josh present before, but what else can you tell us about their work? <laughs> Um, you know, well, for that, you'll have to get my uh, book, uh, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, it is the giving season. 
when uh, when folks who are friends of the religious studies project can head to amazon and use our affiliate link it's now universal so no matter where you are in the world you can use that link and it'll generate local amazon connections for you when's that book coming chris and what's it called yeah um well i mean you can pre-order it on amazon but i just got the peer review comments back the other so day exciting. and they were very very encouraging so uh, i should get it finalized before christmas but the book's called the critical study of non-religion um discourse identification and locality um so those were my sort of three lenses as it were to look at um whatever this thing we might call non-religion is um in that i take a i, I mean you, you'll have heard there um, david and josh taking a more sort of um i suppose um ideal typical sociological approach um mm. and they've got some excellent um empirical data um i and I would say that this typifies um, research into the, quote, non-religious, unquote. Um, but what they've done that's interesting is that the excellent comparative work and looking at it in contexts um, that haven't really been covered to date. Um, what I tried to do was um, to, to really um, take the, the whole critical uh, strand of religious studies so you're... Assad's, McCutcheon's, Fitzgerald's, Mathizawa, um, and take that critique of the, the reification of the category of religion and the power that it does and, and put that to work um, both in, in, in critiquing um, existing studies of the non-religious, whatever that is, and then trying to sort of wed the two approaches by doing some empirical work. So uh, I would say, um, as we've just heard in that interview, that non-religion is thoroughly relational. Um, Johannes Quack has an, an excellent definition of non-religion, which I don't have to hand, but it, it was published in Method and Theory in the Study of Religion, and he makes an excellent argument for conceptualizing it relationally as part of a religion-related field. Um, and, and I think what this interview did this week was demonstrate that in every single context, um, whatever um, the dominant strands of religion are that will be then reflected in whatever positions are taken contrary to that whatever positions of alterity and rejection um, they'll be um, sort of infused by whatever the, the hegemonic um, religious discourse is in the context so I think they did that really well um, although maybe weren't using those terms um, right. so. and that's that's exactly it. Uh, I'm really impressed by the way that what we're thinking about with religion is religion and culture now, the really embeddedness of our lives. That's such a productive way of thinking about it. For a lot of my students, they're finding that they or their friends and they're, you know, are growing up without religious affiliation. They're not going to church, they're not going to temple or synagogue, and that's changing how they think about these things you're still finding yourself embedded in a culture that is full of religious people and religious themes and religious ideas and you encounter them all the time so what do we do with those students and how should they think about things and where are they learning to think about these things in the u.s religious affiliation is declining but when you look at the measures of practice like prayer or meditation we actually see a thriving community that still is 
has strong beliefs and still does a lot of practices that might be identified as religious. So it gives us this lens into how these things might be configured outside of institutions, how they might be working and operating outside of religion as we typically think it, which makes us think about the category of religion differently. And the populations that are doing this are, in the U.S. at least, growing right now. Yeah, yeah, taking that sort of sidestep and go, well, let's look at this population or group that apparently does not have this thing that we call religion and then see what's going on there. Um, and of course, you'll discover lots of normative claims and practices and values and beliefs and uh, non-falsifiable claims and supernatural things. Uh, but then what that does is destabilize the whole notion of religion being a, a, a bounded, definable um, thing that you either have or don't have and it de demonstrates that you know people are people and a lot of this stuff is is human it's not religious it's it's human but there's certain things that we tend to label as being religious or not and, and that act of labeling is uh, is where power and privilege and tradition and all of that comes in <laughs> That was the word in my head, was power, power, um, power, always about power. Yeah, I know, I was just going to say about next week, because it ties in quite nicely, doesn't it? Um, Excellent tie-in. Um, so next week, it's uh, an, an interview that I did with um, a long-time colleague uh, from the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network. It's with Stacey Gutkowski. I've, I've known her for about a decade, and I'm really glad to have got her on the podcast. Um, and we're talking about... I mean, you could have uh, scare quotes around every single one of these terms, but uh, secular Jewish millennials in Israel-Palestine. Um, and it's a fascinating interview and, and, and really ties into basically everything that we've just been saying right now. It's so nice when that happens, right? And uh, next week is going to be introduced by David Robertson and Brianne Fallon live together in person because... David has traveled to Australia for the uh, AASR, I believe, the Australian Association for the Study of Religions Conference, and so we're really excited that they can get together and meet in person and uh, record um, the last few episode things, so thanks for, thanks listening. for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and finding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening.